1: Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody,
0: Peter Greenberg here and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week we're coming from the bottom of the planet, Antarctica, on board the new Silver Endeavor, the latest cutting-edge luxury expedition ship. And if you want to feel overwhelmed, blown away, insignificant, and in awe, then come to the Antarctic, the continent that changes forever the way you look at the world. I'll sit down with explorer Felicity Aston who has a special relationship with the Antarctic. She's the first woman to ever ski across the Antarctic, solo, 59 days. Talk about self-imposed isolation on the Forbidden Continent. Then I'll be joined by Conrad Combrick, another global explorer, who is making his 79th trip to the Antarctic. You could say he's seen just about everything on this fragile continent. And as the Chief of Expeditions for Silver Sea. He'll tell you he's still surprised by the continent and what responsible travelers and explorers need to know. First up, Felicity Aston. Okay, I got to start with the obvious question, uh, because this is not your first rodeo, Uh, you did other things in Greenland, you did other things with other ski teams, but this probably was your most challenging, I hate to use the word endeavor, since we're on the endeavor, but it was.
2: Yeah, exactly and I think that was the point, the the driving force behind doing that specific journey because previous to that most of my journeys had been team expeditions um, and I was very clear about the motivation I derived from those people around me and so I was curious to know well what happens when you take that away what happens when it's just me Um, am I somebody different or is it just the same and on my own wasn't that thought terrifying yeah, and that's that's what drives me to do things. I think if something doesn't terrify you a little, then maybe you're not thinking big enough. You know, it's if you already know you can do something before you set out to do it, kind of what's the point?
0: So let me put this in somewhat of a perspective. I would be terrified to ski across Madison Avenue. So you've taken, I mean, first of all, the environment alone would almost require the buddy system. The, requ- the environment alone would almost require a team because there's no one to help you there's nobody out there to come by there's no there's no bus station there there's no there's there's no relief whatsoever and now you compound it by saying, "Oh yeah, and by the way, I'm going to do it by myself."
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, my mum wasn't very happy with that progression either. You know, she's got used to me going off to dangerous places, but when I went, well, explain
0: explain your definition of a dangerous place.
2: <laughs> well, it's not my definition of danger; it's others' perception. You know, when you're operating in a particular environment, you get more comfortable with the risk i think and that in itself can be a danger you can become too complacent and uh, you know it's always something i'm really wary of um but you know you can never eliminate the risk of an environment altogether but you can try and make it so that you're comfortable with that risk so that takes a long time to really work on each of those areas until you've got to a place where you're comfortable
0: i mean you were on the team that crossed the greenland ice sheet. How long did that take?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, it took us... We, we did a double-crossing, so we went... Uh,
0: oh, yeah. no it wasn't we, enough to do a single-crossing?
2: We went from east to west and then west to east to where we started, and that was 1100 kilometers. And a lot of people look at that. It was my first independent expedition, so they look at that and go, "Oh, you were out to prove yourself." But the reality was, we were putting it together on a shoestring. You know, we were in our 20s. We'd never done anything like it before. We didn't have any financial sponsorship, not anything very big, um, and we couldn't afford the flight off the ice on the west coast. So, in our naivety, we thought, "No problem. We'll just turn." around and ski back and that will save us a whole load load of money but you know when we did arrive back after 31 days it took us to go to the West Coast and back again, um, you know, we were skeletal thin. We had horrible injuries on our feet. Um, we'd had a real time of it. We realized why people don't do a double crossing of the Greenland ice sheet. And we made so many mistakes. But those mistakes, rather than making us feel defeated, for me personally, it made me want to go back out and, you know, show that I'd learned my lesson and to put that lesson, those lessons into action. You know,
0: what be What were those lessons?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, from the very specific things like um, making sure you have boots that have removable liners so that you can dry the liners out every night. We couldn't take the liners out of our boots, so they were always a bit soggy. So the moisture that built up during the day froze during the night. So then in the morning, you're putting your feet back into wet, frozen boots, and the frozen boot as it soaks up the heat from your feet during the day, would then melt the boot so it was cold. And so we got horrible cold injuries on our feet because we were walking in wet or frozen boots all the time, which... uh It is not the way it should be done. And then more generally, things like our rations, we got our rations so wrong. We cut out um, a lot of the fat that you need for an expedition like that. So we had uh, things. What were you eating? Uh, We were eating freeze-dried meals. Uh, We were eating porridge. Uh, We were eating sort of nutrition bars, so high carb or high protein bars.
0: Wait, wait, stop right there. Porridge?
2: porridge yeah in the morning that's a classic expedition staple um so you just take oats with you uh with extra milk powder in it a lot of sugar in it and all you have to do is add water and you have porridge for breakfast Um,
0: but you weren't going to grandma's house
2: (laughs) well when i put together international teams a lot of them have just looked at i remember one teammate from singapore looked at me and just went what are you feeding us like what is this stuff she was like why can't we have noodles for breakfast and i was like yeah you've got a point so now sometimes more often than not I have noodles rather than porridge ramen <laughs> yeah exactly I can't stand porridge after 25 years of eating it on every expedition I honestly can't get it in me anymore <laughs> my body rejects it
0: <laughs> we'll start with Greenland then I'll move over to Antarctic were you ever scared in Greenland?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's different levels of scared the whole time. I think um, a lot of people are under the misapprehension that to be a polar explorer and an expedition leader, you're one of these sort of adrenaline sports junkies, you know, and it couldn't be further from the truth. You have to be really good with a spreadsheet, really love, you know, planning the detail and going into plan A through to Z just in case, always asking yourself, what if, what if, what if, always resisting the urge to take take that shortcut because you don't know what that's going to cost you. And so when you're responsible for people in a place like Greenland or Antarctica or something like that, um, I think you're always a certain level of scared. It's just about, you know, using that fear to help you make better decisions.
0: Now, we mentioned plan A to Z. Let's be honest, plan A never worked. <laughs>
2: Well, not always. I mean, it's always a certain version of planet. It's never too far from. Well, no, that's uh huh. Uh huh. a lot from planet, yeah. But you know, I think it's also about what your expectation is. It's like sailing to Antarctica. If you've if you've got an expectation in your head that you're going to arrive with you know beautiful midnight sun and an orca is going to leap over the bow of your ship, you know, if you if you've gone with a set expectation of what's going to happen, then that's never going to serve you well. Um You've just got to go with the kind of open-ended attitude that whatever happens, it's going to be brilliant, you know, and uh, I think that's a, a much healthier mental position to have when you go into any kind of expedition, including this one.
0: When you were done with the Greenland ice sheet, both directions again, did you look in the mirror and go, I can't wait to do this again? Or like, okay, we're done.
2: Definitely, I can't wait to do it again. I mean, I already had the next expedition in my mind as we were doing... Uh, skiing across Greenland. I think the thing about big, long ski expeditions is it's a lot of time inside your own head. You know, it's not easy to communicate with others while you're on the move. So you have a lot of time to think um, about... Uh, Overthink. Yeah, yeah, maybe overthink. But I think that's a real privilege in modern life, you know, to have time just to think about what have I done? What do I want to do? What do I want to look back on my life in 50 years time and and be proud of? Um, You know, really sort of work out what is important to you and what you want to move forward doing.
0: And who is important to you?
2: Yes, I mean, you know, it's human beings are ultimately contrary things, aren't we? So when you're out on expedition, you're dreaming about being home and how wonderful it is to be sat on, surrounded by your loved ones and having things like supermarkets that stock every food known to man you know, all the things that you don't have in your tent. And yet when you are home and you've got all those wonderful things to hand, all you can think about is wanting to be back out in the mountains or back out of the poles. Um, So I've had to work quite hard at making sure those two kind of passions harmonise with each other rather than cause a conflict, you know, rather than being permanently torn between the two worlds to try and make them balance each other and, and be a harmony
0: and you said that the minute you finished you already had your next expedition planned
2: yes yeah I mean which was where uh, next one after the solo one we we went to the pole of cold the coldest inhabited place in the world uh, which a lot of people don't realize actually northeast, Siberia. Uh, a lot of people say Canada or maybe the North Pole, but in northeast uh, Siberia, there's a little town called Omyakon that r- regularly in the winter time they're down below minus sixty degrees Celsius, um, but they still go to school, drive their cars, go to work. So, <laughs> as someone who'd spent a lot of time in Antarctica, I was fascinated. Like, how do you how do you go to school when it's minus sixty? And all the kids walk to school. It's absolutely incredible. But uh, yeah, so I mean, at any point in time, like right now, I have maybe half a dozen expeditions in various stages of reality from the ones that are still just an idea in my head to the ones that are in the process of being planned to the ones that are absolute certainties are going to happen in the next few months. So, um, you know, it's it, that's the constant process.
0: I should mention we're on board the Silver Endeavour, where Felicity was named the godmother. So congratulations on that. How appropriate. We're in the Antarctic and you skied across it. What gave you the idea? Let's go back to the Antarctic skiing expedition because this was not a team activity. This was just you. Different kind of planning, different kind of mindset, and not a lot of plan Bs, Cs, and Ds on that one.
2: No, and I thought I had prepared really well particularly for the being alone bit you know the, the logistics and everything they weren't too dissimilar from going with a team and expeditions i'd done previously but the being alone was the bit that that worried me particularly because i'd seen in teams how when somebody for example starts showing the early signs of hypothermia or starts getting into trouble they are the last person to realize that something is wrong it's the people around them that pick up on oh you're not speaking much today or you're wearing an extra jacket or you know something's not right with you so it really worried me me, if you're on your own, how do you pick up on those things? Um, And so I I sought the advice of lots of people who had made solo journeys in the past in in the polar regions. I went to see a sports psychologist that specialised in aspects of aloneness. And so I thought I prepared really well. But in those first few seconds of the expedition, as the plane that had dropped me off sort of disappeared over the horizon, I realised that I had not prepared at all, that this was one of the biggest shocks of my life. And it was the shock of that sense of isolation, that realisation that from that moment on, I was totally 100% responsible for my own well-being and what happened from then and that was frightening.
0: Was there a time when that plane took off that if somebody had been there they could hear you screaming what was I thinking?
2: (laughs) Yeah I mean if they'd returned they would have found me sitting on my sledge head in my hands sobbing my heart out thinking you know this is the biggest mistake of my life but you know ultimately you don't have a choice because I was very aware that to get me to that start point had taken a week of logistical maneuvering highly expensive logistical maneuvering to get me to where I needed to be so if they had to come back for me, you know, it it would have been another huge operation of logistically, economically, but also those people risking their lives to to fly over Antarctica to come get me. Well, let's
0: talk about the logistics here. They just didn't drop you off with a sled. They had to drop you off with provisions, with extra clothing, with water, with supplies, with medical supplies, all the things that you might need, correct?
2: Yes. So I uh, I had two resupplies on my journey. I was picking up a bag of food at the South Pole and then another 500, kilometers further along at a location that the plane that dropped me off then dropped the bag on its return journey Um, but what was the guarantee the bag would
0: be there when you got there
2: (laughs) well exactly i had a scrap of paper with a particular set of coordinates on it and i was thinking oh my goodness the chances of me you know gps's aren't hugely accurate at the best of times i was thinking the chances of me finding this tiny bag but it's just a demonstration of how empty the antarctic landscape is that i saw a black dot in the snow from, I think I was three nautical miles away when I first spotted it. I mean, that's like five kilometers. Um, You know, it's incredible that you can see something so tiny from such a distance.
0: But by the time you got to that black dot, how much gear and supplies were you actually physically hauling?
2: Yeah, well, when I started, I couldn't fit everything in one sledge. It was too much volume. So I had two sledges attached one behind the other in series. And together, they weighed about 85 kilograms when I started. So what's that? That's about 190 pounds? is Oh, that?
0: it's more than that. A kilogram was 2.2 pounds. So you're talking about oh, 190 pounds would be about right. Yes, you're right. <laughs> now you know why I failed math and you skied across the Antarctic. Okay. But that's a lot to pull.
2: Um, yeah, and, you know, at the beginning of my journey, I had to get up a glacier called the Leverett Glacier that goes through the Transantarctic Mountains, so I went straight into a kind of steep uphill on a really glassy, icy surface. Um, but, uh, you know, you use the food, um, you so the weight sort of gets less and less as, as you go. Um, and but, get but, fitter.
0: but there's not a trail there, is there? You, you're making this as you go along.
2: Yeah, so... Um, you know things have changed a lot in the Antarctic uh, now. So actually, on the glacier that I used, apparently um, there, there is a, a well-used trail there now. But at the time that I was doing it, no, it's uh, and I was in whiteout most of the time, so I didn't know what was there. I mean, we use the term whiteout pretty flippantly, um, but you know when you've experienced a proper whiteout, it's it's just a big gray, spongy nothingness. You know, you've got no sense of orientation or distance or form or color or contrast, just nothing. So all you've got is GPS. Uh, yeah, although you can't use the GPS all the time because it runs off of batteries and batteries get eaten up really quickly in that sort of cold. And I couldn't take with me, batteries are heavy, you know, I couldn't take with me enough batteries so that I could use my GPS the whole time.
0: So you're just using a basic compass?
2: Yeah, but, and the, 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 it's a sort of compromise because you can't solely just use a compass because the magnetic variation. Is, it, 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 it's haywire. Yeah, that you'd spend all your time sort of trying to... All right. so, so
0: let me get this straight. You can't use the GPS all the time because the batteries. You can't use the compass because it doesn't tell the truth. <laughs> Dead reckoning is not going to work in a whiteout. So how did you do it?
2: No, so you have to use a sort of combination of, of everything that you've got available. So I would have, in the morning, I would take a spot location on my on my GPS and then just sort of get a sense of direction. And then I would just dial that direction into my compass as a sort of pointing stick. Uh, but more often than not, I was using environmental factors too. So if there was a wind, wind is very directional in, in Antarctica. So for example, okay, the wind's hitting the back of my right shoulder. So if at any point I suddenly felt that the wind was was hitting my left side, I knew I had gone off track and would check with my compass and my GPS.
0: Well, your navigational skills, based on what may be tapping you on the shoulder in the form of wind, I'm amazed I'm even sitting here talking to you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, your mind plays such tricks on you and... That's one of the hard challenges of an expedition like this is that you're constantly sort of second-guessing yourself. So, for example, I would stop occasionally. I'd stay on my skis. I'd adjust, I don't know, a glove or my jacket or something. I haven't moved my skis. And then I'm ready to set off again. And I glance down at my GPS and my GP- uh, or my compass. And my compass is telling me that I've turned exactly 90 degrees. And I'm thinking, there is no way I've turned. I haven't moved my skis since I stopped. How can I have moved 90 degrees? And then there's a battle between do I trust the compass? or do I trust my mind? And in every case, the right answer is trust the compass. But it is so difficult to trust the compass when your body and your mind is telling you the exact opposite. And
0: So please tell me you weren't going around in circles.
2: <laughs> some days I would believe that I was, you know, some days I would stop and pitch my tent and think this is exactly the same spot of snow that i camped on last night I, I I could I could swear it and yet of course it wasn't you know and so I would check with my GPS now I'm definitely in a different place and I had a map of my route so it was a kind of laminated white sheet in effect There's there's nothing to be on a map right but the reason I had it was that every night I would put a little cross where I'd pitched my tent. And that was the kind of proof to myself, the reaffirmation that I wasn't going around in circles and that I was actually making progress. Because if I relied on the evidence of my eyes and my senses, I would have believed that I was just going round and round on the spot.
0: How long did it take you?
2: 59 days. Say that again. (laughs) 59 days.
0: With not another person.
2: No, well, I did see people along the journey. So um, at the South Pole, the South Pole is now, um, you know, one of the biggest research stations on Antarctica. So there's 250 people that live and work there during the summer season. So as I approached the South Pole station, I'd been there before, so I knew there were people there. And although it was a whiteout, so I couldn't see anything, um, just knowing that there were people close by I got such a sense of mental security from that I knew that if something went wrong right there and then you know there were people out there that could help me and that really worried me because of course the South Pole wasn't the end of my journey the South Pole is more or less in the center of Antarctica so I had to pass through it and not many people at the time did that you know arrived at the South Pole and then had to carry on and I was worried about okay now that I know how awful it feels to be out there on my own I've now had the safety of being near other people but now I've got to let go of that sense of safety and propel myself back out into that loneliness. And I know exactly how terrifying that's going to feel. So but you hard. did it. Yeah, well, I'll let you into a secret. The only, I think one of the only reasons I managed to get myself out of the South Pole Station again was that a small group of scientists came out to very kindly sort of wish me on my way. And the truth is, it's really difficult to tell a waiting crowd how no, no matter how small that crowd is, that you've changed your mind and you're not going. Anyway, you know i didn't want to see that disappointment in their faces so i remember quite clearly skiing out of the south pole thinking you know with every fiber of my being screaming that this was a mistake and yet thinking you can just you know ski out today and come back on the quiet tomorrow when nobody sees you but you know, that fear of public humiliation is a is a strong one that shouldn't be underestimated <laughs> All right, so we talked about
0: an occasional people sighting but you kept going what about animals
2: no, not not a sausage, probably not even bacteria as far as I'm aware. Um, you know, I mean, it's one of the uh, unique features of the Antarctic Plateau that... There is just nothing. There's all the wildlife stays near the coast, near open water. So you're not going to see a penguin or a seabird. Um, even if you hit rock, you won't find mosses or lichen. Um, yeah, even bacteria has a hard time surviving. So, so nothing
0: is growing there.
2: Nothing, nothing, and nobody. And there's never been a native population of Antarctica. So there's no sort of human footprint. Um, or, you know, the footprint that's there is, is a very light one. Um, so it's it's a really otherworldly landscape, otherworldly place to be. And it messes with your head. You start to doubt that existence is out there. You start to doubt that it can be possible that there are motorways and, you know, um, electricity. And, you know, all these things seem so far-fetched because you're in this ancient, vast and empty World and it, but you begin to believe that that's all there is.
0: If you were having conversations with yourself and, and losing the argument.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I, I didn't just talk to myself either. I ended up talking to the sun quite a lot too, which um, I've since learned a lot of people do. Uh, you know, it's like a coping strategy. Uh, talk to the sun. But where I started to get worried was when the sun started talking back. That was <laughs> a moment where I thought, oh no, is this a bad sign? But um the sports psychologist that I'd been seeing before I left had said to me, you know, I asked him, you know, when should Should I be worried that, you know, I'm I'm reaching some kind of breaking point? And he said, as long as you know on some level that what you're experiencing is not real, then you don't have a clinical problem. It's small reassurance, but it was reassurance. So I ended up telling to myself, you know that the sun's not really speaking to you, don't you? And then I had the sun in the back of my head saying, well, I'm offended. You think I'm not real. I might not bother turning up if you think I'm just a figment of your imagination. So (laughs) it shows how complex your self-deception and your coping strategies can get. But
0: let me ask you a question that most people don't realize until they get down here, and that's the concept of light. And that is, in a 24-hour period, there's not a lot of darkness.
2: No, and I find that a wonderful thing. It's really useful for a start because you know time zones or the time of day ceases to have relevance. Um, so you can focus on things like how tired you are, or you know, it, but patterns become varied um, and and more specific to, to what you're doing.
0: How often did you sleep every night? How, ma- how much? How many? hours
2: it was really important to me that I got a good eight hours sleep if I could which is kind of unheard of on expeditions usually one you know characteristic of expeditions is you don't get much sleep but it was because it was a longer expedition it was really important to me that I got the rest Um, so when I stopped I stopped for a good period of time Uh, but then it meant that I would be on the move for longer too so I would never be on the move for less than 12 hours um, and usually 16 or so hours before I would stop and put up the tent
0: but of course you put up the 10th in daylight
2: yeah so that you know you don't need head torches or anything and it's it's quite a comforting thing that doesn't matter when you wake up you can see immediately it's a lot harder you know when i've done expeditions uh when you've had darkness you know you can bet your bottom dollar that something really complicated is going to go wrong while it's dark it never goes wrong in the daylight and it just makes things so much more complicated and more scary in a way when you can't see um we rely on our sight for much more than you know we realize i think um so I actually like the the 24-hour d- daylight. I find it helpful. Of course,
0: the juxtaposition is I'm talking to you on board the Silver Endeavour, where you're seeing the Antarctic in somewhat more comfort than you experienced it on those skis.
2: Yeah, I'm always saying to people, you know, there are lots of different ways to explore and to have worthwhile experiences, wonderful experiences that can really affect you and that can do a lot of good. You don't have to you know, be suffering to be doing something worthwhile. (laughs) You can do it in comfort.
0: Not your excuse for being on this ship.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, when when I first started doing uh, polar travel, um, I benefited a lot from a a lot of Norwegians that were around and, you know, I was soaking up their experience and their philosophy. And, you know, the, the British philosophy is very much about stoicism, like you have to suffer to prove that you're doing something really difficult.
0: By the way, When I was first starting my my career as a journalist, I would go to bookstores in London and look at all the books written by British travel writers, and every book title was, My Walk Across India, My Journey, everything was their, their, you know, how stoic they were in the middle of, you know, Ethiopia, and that's really what you did.
2: Yeah. But I mean, the Norwegian approach is totally different. They think that, you know, you're winning if you're making yourself comfortable in an environment. You know, if you're feeling comfortable, then you're going to be able to put in a better performance. And I really ascribe to that because, um, you, you know, if you've got frostbite in your hands and your feet and you haven't looked you know, if you're in a bad shape, then... Uh, then you're not going to be able to put in your best performance. And mentally too, you know, small things can make a big difference mentally. Warming up your boots in the morning with a hot water bottle before you put them on. You know, some of my uh, British uh, contemporaries, you know, laughed out the side of their faces. Oh, yeah, it's a bit, uh, that's a bit of luxury. But actually, it means that you're putting on nice warm boots in the morning, so your feet are feeling good and you can put in a good day, you know, rather than starting off the day with feet that have fallen off.
0: I get it. So what does it mean to be the godmother of this ship?
2: I think it's such a wonderful tradition for a start. I mean, my, my big passion is s- reinforcing that women have always been explorers. You know, too often it's suggested that they are kind of new arrivals in exploration. There have been women exploring since the beginning of time. Of course there have. And so I love the fact that firstly, that ships are always female. And secondly, this tradition of having a godmother. I think it's just a little reminder that, you know, that the women are a really important part of the expedition story and expedition heritage.
0: My thanks to Felicity. What an incredible story. And now to a longer perspective on the Antarctic from someone who knows it well. Conrad Combrink, who runs the expeditions for Silver Sea Cruises, is making his 79th trip to the continent. And the feeling he gets every time he returns is that it might as well be his first time.
1: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Conrad Kombrick, who is the head of all destination planning, itineraries management, and expeditions. Did I get it all right, just about? That
3: is everything. I look after all the itinerary management for Silver Sea Expeditions, our destination research. You know, we are very destination focused. And, of course, all our expeditions, expedition experiences, shore excursions. So it is a really diverse and very interesting role.
0: And it's one thing to plan an expedition to Fort Lauderdale. It's one thing to plan an expedition to Miami or to Los Angeles. Down here, where most of the water still remain, for all intents and purposes, uncharted, it's a brave new world.
3: It really is, you know. And I always remind myself and my team that nothing has changed. You know, it is still the same dangerous, wonderful world that Amundsen and Shackleton and Scott experienced when they came here in the early 1900s. The only thing that has changed is that we now have these incredible vessels like Silver Endeavour that allow allows us to come and explore in luxury. Well, you've got the technology that allows you to do that as well. You know, this ship is incredible technology. From the range, the ICE class dynamic positioning system, the the range of technology that we have to allow us to really push deeper and further, and really deliver those authentic experiences is a game changer.
0: You mentioned dynamic positioning. Let me explain that. We're not dropping anchor. You do not drop an anchor. You have your bow thrusters, your stern thrusters, they're geo-positioned on a gyro, and you can actually hold
3: position endlessly. You know, we saw it the other day. When we arrived in the Antarctic Peninsula, there were pretty strong winds. The captain brought the ship very close to the island. Normally, you would want to anchor. There was no anchorage. The water was very deep. So he just put the ship in position. He pressed the dynamic positioning button and the computers took over and did the rest. It kept the ship completely stable. It created a lee for us, which meant that we could put our Zodiacs in the water and safely we could embark and disembark our guests on the Zodiacs. And the ship just stayed there, you know, for it was a three or four hour period and the ship didn't move. It is an incredible piece of technology. And like you say, we have not used Anchor once over the past few days that we've been in Antarctica. And that really is a groundbreaking technology and a a game changer for us.
0: I remember when I first came down here about four years ago, of course, the very first day you're going, oh, look, it's the Antarctic. And then the next day it's like, oh my God, it's the Antarctic. Because you take so much for granted. You get a little bit spoiled on a ship like this. And then the minute you step into the Zodiac, you realize "I've I've now entered
3: a different world. You know, it is always fun to see the transformation in people you know they have this theoretical idea of what Antarctica is going to be like but no matter how much time you spend researching it no matter how much time you spend preparing for it you are completely unprepared for the majestic beauty, for the grandiose Antarctica that you experience. You know, I've been here, this was my 79th trip. I I was
0: about to say that. I'm still blown away by that. You've been here 79 times.
3: And I've experienced it 79 different uh, uh, ways. It is just, it is one of the most incredible destinations. You know, I often get asked by my colleagues, um, by our travel partners, by our guests, um, what is Antarctica like? You know, How do I explain Antarctica? How do you do that? You can't. Until you've been here, you truly do not understand it. Um, it is just one of those places that, I mean, Peter, you've been with me on expeditions. And you know that places like Antarctica, even couples on the same trip, have different emotional experiences because it is an emotional journey. You know, you are at the end of the world. You are in an area where it is almost still untouched by by human elements. And it is an area where every single day, like we've experienced the last two days, it changes you've got sunshine, you've got wind, you've got snow, you've got blizzards, all in a couple of hours. It's an area where we do not have control. And in our lives, where we love to take control of everything, I find it incredibly satisfying that there is a place on Earth where... We have to completely relinquish control to Mother Nature.
0: I mean, you talk about the same environment that Shackleton saw and Amundsen and and Scott. With one difference, they didn't have much of a chance. I mean, this is an extreme destination that does extreme things in very short amounts of time.
3: It really is. And, you know, of course, over the past few decades as expedition cruising um, and the popularity of expedition cruising grew, um, we have also started preparing for that growth. So, you know, the amount of time that we spend preparing for these expeditions um, is really intense. You know, our expedition team gets really intense training. We make sure that we have got a very qualified expedition team, because they are the people that take you out on the Zodiacs, on the hikes. So we make sure that we cover everything from crevasse rescue to medic first aid training. You know, it is it is a very intense operation months before the vessel even gets down to Antarctica.
0: And of course, when the, when the weather changes that rapidly, you have to get, get good weather forecasting,
3: otherwise you could get trapped. The golden rule in Antarctica is you do not look at what's happening now you always look at what's happening an hour and a day from now because the weather can change so quickly. You have to be able to react. So sometimes we would cancel a landing or call off an activity, and people would say, but I've got blue skies and no wind. Like, yes, but an hour from now, it's going to be very different. So you always have to look to the future.
0: And, of course, the seasons here are completely reversed. Uh, Our summer is not where you want to be down here. Between, let's say, March and November, very little light extreme cold no i mean it's nobody comes
3: unless you're a scientist and you overwinter here in a in a base but yeah there are no tourism down here during our u.s summers um and then of course we are here now in uh, in the winter the u.s winter and uh, as we're experiencing now it's warmer here than in new york I, I keep going
0: back to the idea that whatever plan a you have is plan g by the end of the day
3: by the time that we present it to our guests, it's probably plan ZZ <laughs> because it is a constant change. You know, the relationship on an expedition ship between the captain, the expedition leader, is absolutely vital because they continuously monitor ice, weather, wildlife. But what i And the captain is still God. The captain is absolutely the final um, person in charge and he makes the decision. And you know, there are a couple of things, you know, at Silver Sea, we fully, fully believe that there's no commercial pressure on anybody on our ships to get guests off the ship, you know, so it's always safety first, 100%. But Peter, you know, one of the beauties about Antarctica Outside Antarctica, you've got all these companies, Silver Sea and many of our competitors, we compete against each other. But when the ships are down here in Antarctica, it really is a community of expedition ships that work together, not only to make sure that everything is safe, but also that we preserve Antarctica. So um, we work together together to allow each other to change plans. And, you know, if somebody had a bad weather day a couple of days ago and they really need to get people ashore, we will trade, you know, and say, ah, come in here, we'll go somewhere else. So it's a wonderful example of how companies can work together. Of course, it's back
0: to managing growth as well, because, you know, during the pandemic, everybody is seeking out social distancing. You can't get better social distancing than where we are right now. The population doesn't really exist, other than what's on this ship and a few other ships. So the real challenge that not just you have, but the, all the cruise lines have, is how do you manage that growth and
3: still preserve the environment? That's a very, very good question. You know, we belong to IATO. IATO is a membership organization. Which means? The International Association for Antarctic Tour Operators. This is a membership organization founded by five expedition companies many, many years ago, um, for the pure purpose of preservation of Antarctica and for the creation of sustainable travel to Antarctica and creating ambassadors for the continent.
0: What is sustainable I know what sustainable travel means in Miami. What does it mean in the Antarctic? In Antarctica it basically it goes beyond no single use straws.
3: No, absolutely, you know, it goes the at, at its core, it is creating ambassadors for Antarctica and limiting human impact. So making sure that the travel that we have here has no more than a transient impact. So it is not a permanent impact that we have here. So Everything that we do, every every operation has been planned to make sure that the impact to the nature is at its minimum. And as we're
0: sailing through some of these islands, which have names like Deception Island, which in itself is, is pretty awesome, uh, you may see one or two or three red buildings, but those are the research stations. There's no more building going on.
3: No, absolutely not. You know there are some research stations, and some of these are refuge huts that's been put up because, of course, uh, the scientists do travel away from their bases. So these refuge huts are there for them to use. But you know another way, Peter, when when we talk about how we prepare for the growth at Silver Sea, we've made the decision to actually um, send a scouting mission down to Antarctica. So in the next few months. We will actually charter a ship, not one of our own ships, we will charter a research ship and we are sending a team of captains and expedition staff down to Antarctica on a, on a multi-week mission to, to explore Antarctica, to create site guidelines for the industry so that we can operate um, in a little bit more of a spread out way.
0: And not just site guidelines for you, but for everybody else.
3: Yes, absolutely. You know, again, it goes back to that collaboration because the more we develop positive the environment, the the tourism in this area, we will all benefit. And ultimately, it's not about only us benefiting as companies. It is the environment, Antarctica, benefiting. And that is truly what Antarctic tourism is about, the sustainability, making sure that our impact is not permanent.
0: We're not talking T-shirts. We're not talking straw hats. We're not talking souvenirs. There are no souvenirs.
3: Except if you go to one or two of the scientific stations. They sell T-shirts and souvenirs.
0: You know what? I was at a Chilean research station four years ago, and they gave me a challenge coin. I was in. That's <laughs> it. But that's it. That, that really is it, you know. So the real question now is, when passengers leave this ship and other ships, what's the message you want them to carry back?
3: We, As I mentioned before, we want them to be ambassadors for Antarctica. We want them to go back and spread the word that we have to have to have to preserve the beauty, the pristine environment that is Antarctica. And we should take this message, not only in Antarctica, we should take it beyond Antarctica. We have to start looking after our planet.
0: My thanks to Conrad. And to Felicity Aston, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news from anywhere in the world, just log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail?